Morning, everybody. How you doing? Good, good. I hope you don't ever stop giving thanks and praise for the worship team. Aren't they amazing? Come on. Don't stop. Don't stop with that. I want to do something a little different this morning. I appreciate Brett's introduction. I want to do something a little bit different. You know, here we are this week uh, with 4th of July in the middle of the week, and everybody's talking about the American dream, and are we fulfilling the American dream, and and what is the American dream these days, and what are the competing visions of the American dream? And, um, you know, I have a little concern about the way that the idea of our dream or the dream sort of plays out in our society. I mean, when you become a believer in Jesus Christ, one of the great privileges is that you are born again and that you get to know him. I mean, that's just, can't you just feel us in this room just excited about that and worshiping him for that? One of the things, the next thing, I'd say probably number two, maybe somewhere in the top four or five, uh, is the idea that God has a purpose for your life. And that as you begin to seek him and follow him, he begins to make that known. Well, because of our, the way our English plays out, we use the word dream. God has a dream he wants you to fulfill. God has a, a purpose, a dream. Call it a destiny. Call it a, uh, call, call it a life he's ordained for you. But, but it all comes out of Psalm 25, 12, uh, which says that uh, there is a way chosen for you. That's, that's really what we're talking about. We're talking about the fact that God has a life that he has chosen for you to live and that as you follow him and you worship him uh, and, and, and you obey him and come in alignment with his word, uh, then, then he begins to make that known to you. That's one of the most exciting things in the world because all of the weird conglomeration of things that we are, come on, you know what I'm saying, all the things we look at about ourselves, I'm this, I'm that, it doesn't seem to fit, it all does fit when we're fulfilling the purpose of God. The problem is that everybody's trying to offer us some alternative version of that dream. I've got a friend who, uh, on Facebook, and whenever he's, you know, writing me about something his wife has made him do, he'll take a picture of it for some strange reason. And, and, uh, and his, so he'll be in the backyard shoveling dog do or something. He'll go, living the dream, you know, <laughs> living the dream. And, and uh, what, what is he saying? Well, this isn't, this isn't the dream. What is the dream? If that's not the dream, then his version of the dream is what? You know, sitting in the Barco lounger watching football? I mean, is that, what is, uh, what is the dream? Is it, uh, you know, is it a life free of pain? Uh, you know, you've got the People Magazine version of the dream. You've got the Vanity Fair version of the dream. You've got the, you know, American Idol version of the dream, right? You've got the NFL version of the dream or the NBA. You, got, you know what I'm saying. You've got every, you got every ethnicity's got its own maybe sort of its version of the dream. You've got the lifestyles of the rich and disgusting version of the dream. You, you know what I'm talking about. Everybody's got a version of the dream. Well, the, the problem is that the church maybe, and I don't want to start negative, but the church is maybe absorbed. Not, not, I don't mean this church. I mean Christians today ha- have absorbed some of that sort of secular materialistic thinking. I've got a young friend on Facebook. He's about 15, 16 years old. And, and every so often he'll take a picture of like a hundred dollars to $190,000 car. And he'll, he'll write, the dream. Really? That's the dream? Because if that's the dream, I'm not even close. You know what I'm saying? I mean, the dream is a $190,000 car. What version of the dream is that? And so I, I'm, I have a little concern that, that we've either made it too easy to talk and think about the dream in the church, or, or we've made it too materialistic, too much about this world. You, you understand what I'm saying. And what I know from the scriptures, what I know from having fulfilled it a bit myself and studied some folks who 
uh, have lived it out, is that you, you, you do not come together. You do not find as much joy. You do not find as much sense of belonging on this planet for this season of life as you will when you are walking out the way that God has ordained for your life. That, that is when you come together in his presence. And so I, I want to... Uh, I want to put them, do, do something today. Uh, I have been the guy on staff, uh, the, the guy who preaches, who uses fewer um, um, graphics and, and keynote than anybody else. Well, this morning, we're going to heal that in the name of Jesus. I have got keynote for you on stun. When this is over, I want you to walk up to a, staff, a staffer somewhere and say, leave him alone. He has atoned for all of his sins. So let me, let me do something a little bit unusual, and I'm not just doing this because it's 4th of July week. I'm doing it because I want to see us fulfill the dream God has for our lives. I want to see us walk out the way chosen for us, and I, and I want to shoot straight from the lives of some folks who have come before us and talk about some principles out of their lives. But, but first of all, uh, let, let me just talk to you for a moment about this quote. Just read this quote to yourself, and I'll read it with you in a minute. Now, this is a quote by T.E. Lawrence. You know him better as Lawrence of Arabia. And if you have not seen the movie Lawrence of Arabia, you are not going to heaven. Uh, so, so make a list of the films I mention in this talk so that you don't go to hell uh, by the time the day is over. But here, here, here is the quote that I love so much. Those who dream by night, everybody has a dream at night, you know, something flashes through their brain temporarily. Those who dream by night in the dusty recesses of their minds uh, they wake and find it was vanity. They wake up, it goes away, it's temporary, it's, it's fleeting. But there are dreamers of the day. I love that phrase. I'm going to write a book about that. Do not steal that from me. <laughs> but the dreamers of the day are dangerous men. That doesn't mean that in negative sense. They're people who are going to be effective and powerful and, and threatening uh, against their enemies. For they may act their dream with open eyes and make it possible. This I did. I want to be a dreamer of the day, don't you? I don't want to have fleeting little fluffy kinds of dreams in my brain that just kind of come and go. I want to have the central dream that lives with me and that I'm dreaming during the day. And that's, that's what T.E. Lawrence said in his Seven Pillars of Wisdom, his great autobiography. And, and I know you'll read that just as soon as you watch the movie. So this is the, this is the great quote. So I'm calling the series Dreamers of the Day. And I, I want to talk to you about a, a number of different people uh, in history, just, just briefly. Now, I know some of you are thinking, dude, it is 119 degrees outside what are you doing talking about pilgrims? Uh, I do not want to think about turkey and pumpkin right now. Well, uh, the pilgrims that, whom we remember at Thanksgiving, uh, the pilgrims who uh, came to the New World in 1620 and sailed on the Mayflower and all that that we remember and said they sailed for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christ Christian faith, um, uh, you know, uh, they, they uh, had something pretty amazing happening that some of us need to know. You see, they were a Protestant congregation persecuted in England in the early 1600s. And uh, they, they, many of them were killed, they were arrested, they were jailed, they were outlawed by the Anglican establishment at the time. And in 1608, they said, we can't do this anymore. And they all went to Holland and stayed there for 12 years. Now, Holland, as it is pretty much today, is pretty, pretty immoral, pretty rough uh, place. And, and so their children began to drift away. Many of them had to work outside of their professions as, as laborers, and they started to die early and so on. And so here they were, suffering. Here they were in hardship. Uh, here they were in difficulty. And, and it was right during that time that God began to embed in them as a group what it was they were called to do. And they wrote it in their journals. 
And they said, we, we became aware that it was our calling to take the gospel of the Prince of Peace to the natives of the new world. Now, before you go there, I want you to understand, I realize that later on in later settlements, that didn't go so well for the people of the new world. I'm Native American. I think most of you still owe me some land. So I'm not lost on that whole deal, okay? Thank you very much. So, and we'll talk about that in a future sermon. However, right now, um, what I want you to know is that when they came, they had a Christian vision. When did it come? It came during the hard times. It came during the suffering times. It came when they were in exile and their children are falling away and they're dying early and it's hard time. Now, we have, particularly because we are, call us what you will, charismatics, neo-Pentecostals, folks who believe in the Holy Spirit, however you want to say it, uh, we have a tendency to believe that all significant revelation about our lives either comes at a prophecy conference or comes as part of a sermon or comes in some kind of glory ball experience. And thank God for all the glory ball experiences you have. Okay, whatever glory ball experience means, I'm making it up. But, but what I want you to understand is sometimes and often, I might say, God embeds his dream for our life during difficult times, during hard times, during suffering times. Some of you do not have the big glory ball experiences uh, that others have. And you look and you think, well, God must not be wanting to use me. And, and that does nothing but, but allow the enemy to beat on you and disillusion you when God wants to use you just as much. He just has a different language and a different way. He wants to communicate with you. Sometimes God uses the difficult times. And don't make an idol out of significant spiritual experiences. I became a Christian at a time when, when there were a lot of prayer lines. You guys, some of you remember what I'm talking about. I became a Christian in 76. So if somebody's preaching the gospel, afterwards somebody's lining up across the stage. Everybody's going to get laid hands on and folks are expected to fall out. Now don't, don't misunderstand. I believe genuinely in the Holy Spirit coming on people and them falling out. But for some reason, you could have 10,000 people lined up to have prayer, and all of them will fall out but me. And I'm standing there going, well, you know. <laughs> you know, TV cameras on me like at a stadium. I'm up on the screen going, what? I, I don't, what do I do, you know? And you cannot trust in those kinds of experiences. Yes, we believe in prophecy. Yes, we believe in the Holy Spirit overcoming people. But don't make a religion, don't make a ritual out of any one thing that happens. As soon as you do, God will switch to something else just so you don't make an idol out of his methods. All right? So, so these people, and by the way, I just wanted to show you this on a, on a hot day, just so you get a little, little, little feeling of what it's like to have snow. Um, you know, these people received a, a, a nation-changing sense of God's calling during the worst season of their life. When John, the revelator, the John, the one who, of course, penned the words of the book of Revelation, said that he went to Isle of Patmos to, to receive the word, the word there doesn't mean that he was arrested or that he went out there, you know, on a, like a spiritual retreat. It, it, it literally means that he was positioned to receive the word. Uh, the, Greek, the Greek there means that, he, that, that God positioned him so that he would not be in a distracted, I'm, I'm reading a little bit into this, not be in a distracted state, be in a position where maybe in a season of hardship and stripping, he could receive the word. Maybe that's what God's doing with you. Maybe you're interpreting the very condition of life that God is going to use to speak to you as some silly indication that God has rejected you and doesn't want to speak to you at all. Do you hear what I mean? We're going to have to let God speak the way he wants to speak. And sometimes, it's not bad news, he speaks in difficult circumstances. 
All right? Can you hear that? Can you receive that? I think that's some mature Christianity. Let's get off the, uh, the Indians and the pilgrims here. I'll talk to you about that land later. Now, there's another thing that is true about the calling of God and, and the fact that God has chosen us, and it's illustrated by Martin Luther. I hope you know who he was. He's the man who helped us break from some of the legalism and works of the, of the medieval Roman Catholic Church, different from today, uh, and, and taught the great truth that we're justified and saved by faith. But, but he did not always live that truth. Martin Luther had lived such a horrible life before he was a Christian um, that, that, that he, when he became a Christian, he did not believe that God could, loved him and God had forgiven him of his sins. He, he thought that he had to do works. He thought he had to do something to impress God. And so he fasted so much that he damaged his, uh, his stomach. He, uh, he had stomach troubles the rest of his life. He whipped himself until he passed out from the bleeding. He, he slept in the snow. He, he, he worked, uh, worked all hours until he passed out from exhaustion. He was trying to, to do enough works to get God to love him and forgive him because he never felt the love and forgiveness of God. Now, what was going on here? He was having to live out the message he would one day proclaim to the nations. And sometimes the path that you are on is God requiring you to walk out and experience and live in the grace that ultimately you're going to proclaim to other folks. People are very quick to talk about uh, their, their dream. And I have people say things like this to me all the time. Well, the Lord's called me to work in racial reconciliation. Awesome. But that means you're about to have 92 different opportunities to hate some folks. You, you know what I mean? Right? Come on. You know what I mean? I'm called to minister to marriages. Great. Then you probably are going to have to fight for your own so that you can tell folks what to do when you get there. You, you understand what I'm saying? I, I'm having to overcome being a stutterer. I'm having to overcome uh, being autistic. Or I'm having to overcome some... Okay, awesome. Overcome it so that you dig a well of inspiration and anointing to help other people with. But you will have to walk through it. God is not sending lightweights out into his field to bring his kingdom message. You understand what I'm saying? You're going to have to be a weighty person because you've been through it first. And that's why we need to be careful about what we go around saying we're called to do, right? I'm going to deliver Australia of demons. Really? Well, then all those demons come into your bedroom one night just to check you out to know the nature of the battle. I'm just saying. So finally, this is one of my favorite stories. I, I wish Brett wasn't sitting here so I could tell the story. Um, I'm glad he's not. Uh, so Martin Luther, finally, uh, God just wants to get, meet him at just a, like an earthy level. So Martin Luther, one day as a, as a monk, is sitting on the toilet with his New Testament in his lap. And, and he's just reading the word. And all of a sudden, uh, the, you know how, the, how it is when the Holy Spirit illuminates the scripture. And, 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 the, and the, the scripture from Habakkuk that's repeated in Romans, the just shall live by faith, blew up into his eyes. He saw it. He had the revelation. It's like the Lord said, I met you on the toilet just to show you that you bring nothing to the process. And so... so uh, I'm just saying. And so, and so, so that, and that right there sparks the reformation that changes nations. Now, come on. But he had to walk through it. And some of you interpret the fact that you're having to walk through it now as the fact that God is not calling you when, in fact, it's the process of qualifying you for what he's called you to do. Come on, encourage yourself. I see people punching each other. Just punch yourself. All right. So we just want to get a little real today. Now, maybe you've heard of this gentleman, one of my heroes in history. Nelson Mandela was uh, a, a, an African leader in South Africa during the racist days of apartheid. 
And uh, he, he tried to use the political system, and people wouldn't respond. He, he wouldn't get, couldn't get justice. Finally, he became the head of an organization called uh, Spear of the Nation, uh, which was partially political. It became increasingly uh, a bit more radical as the opposition was increasingly corrupt and racist. Finally, they went guerrilla. Uh, they engaged in some uh, terrorist actions, and some people were killed. He was imprisoned for 27 years. Now, you have to see the movie Evictus. How many have seen Invictus? Not going to heaven. The rest of you have got to get Invictus is your 4th of July movie. And, and so uh, you see that. Now, what he did, what did he do during all those years? He read and he read and he read and he also read his Bible. And he says that he came back to his Methodist faith and had an experience with Jesus Christ. That's what he says. It's not me making this up. So when he came out 27 years later, and by the way, you can go online and see the pictures of the Robin Island uh, cell that he was in. Of course, it's in the movie Invictus for those who are serious Christians and, and, the, uh, and the, you know, the other things that you can see. Uh, well, what happened was he came out and he had changed. He had changed from this guy and he began to forgive everybody. Well, his own political party said, what are you doing? And he still knew how to play political hardball, and believe me, he did. He, he, he really ran circles around the white government at the time. But, he, but when, it, when it all came down to it, he forgave everybody. He forgave P.W. Botha, the racist leader of the, of the government at the time. He forgave the, uh, the whites. He forgave governments who reinforced them and gave them planes and gas and stuff like that to come against the, the folks at Soweto and other places. He forgave, he forgave, he forgave. And he changed his nation with the power of forgiveness. In fact, if you've seen the movie Invictus, he even used, tried to use the rugby team of the country to bring healing and reconciliation. But it wasn't something he would have known 27 years before. What's the message? God is going to accomplish the dream differently than you expect. He may show you what the dream is, then our imaginations go ahead and ride in the next 27 steps. But he changes the dream. I mean, uh, the, the, the Nelson Mandela of his early 20s would never have understood how to change a nation through forgiveness. But the Nelson Mandela of 27 years later changed the nation and I think impacted the world through the power of forgiveness. And let me show you my favorite picture. This is my favorite picture. Watch this. I love this one, but that's him thinking. We don't know what he's thinking, so I feel left out. But this is my picture right here. Look at this. This is a, this is a prisoner at Robben Island in South Africa reviewing the troops of the British Empire. Now, come on. That's what happens when you become the kind of leader you're called to be. I love that story. Just absolutely love it. But remember what it's a symbol of. It's not just about, hey, isn't Nelson Mandela wonderful? It's about God changes. The, he's not going to do it the way you think he's going to do it. Ask Brett if he's doing right now what he thought he'd be doing back in the 20s when he was a teenager. No, I'm just playing. <laughs> Nobody is, of course not. All right, look at this. This is one of my favorite people, Winston Churchill. Now, here's what we have to know. To do and fulfill the calling of God, we have to have greater patience, greater character, greater inner strength than we have now. Now, Many of us think, especially again in our Pentecostal charismatic worlds, which I'm a full card-carrying member of, I'm not criticizing it, we think God just adds that spiritually. He just pours that in one day in a worship service, and that's the end of it. Well, he, he can do some of that. But you know as well as I do that many times what he does is he puts you through a process. He puts you through the school of the Holy Spirit. And what does it say in Hebrews? It says, endure hardship as discipline. All that random hard stuff that goes on in your life, the Bible doesn't say that's just random hard stuff. That is God putting you into a process of discipline so that you can accomplish what you're made to accomplish. Okay? Well, we can look at a guy like Winston Churchill. Every survey of the last century uh, says that Winston Churchill was the greatest leader of that century. But Winston Churchill suffered. 
And it was only because he'd been in the depths of suffering that he had anything to offer to the world. Winston Churchill was born a stutterer and had to overcome it. His father hated him. His father, all of Churchill's young life, was descending into some kind of a madness. They used to say syphilis. Now they say it was something else. Uh, uh, he, was, he was hated by his father. He did horribly. Churchill did horribly in school. Uh, he he, he uh, had a troubled marriage. Uh, one child committed suicide. Two drank themselves to death. Uh, another died in infancy. He made decisions that threw his whole country into chaos uh, when, when he was the leader of the country. I mean, he just made mistakes. And by the way, when he became the leader of his country, he wouldn't stay in a room with a, with a balcony on it because he was afraid a depression would hit him and he'd throw himself off. That's how much he suffered. But because he'd been in the pit, because he'd had the dark night of the soul, because he knew what it was like to fight back when the demons came, he could lead the Western world in opposition to what he called the, the, the paganism of Nazism. You see, what Winston Churchill really brought to the fight against the Nazis was, he said, this is paganism and the Christian nations need to arise against it. And we do not need to fold. We need to be courageous so that this is our finest hour. Where'd that come from? It came from facing the darkness in the night. It came from battling back his own demons. It came from walking around the grounds of Blenheim Palace, overcoming his stuttering. It came from keeping himself from throwing himself off that balcony, not being ashamed about it. You understand what I'm saying? You fight back the inner stuff, then you've got something to offer other people. That's what it means to have character. And a cigar doesn't hurt either. So all of it to say, this is Winston Churchill. And I think that's a very important lesson for us. Now, just a few more here, because I think this is so, so critical. for How in the world is he going to work NASA into this talk? Well, there, there, is a, there is a thing that we have a tendency to do about proclaiming the dream too early. You remember when Joseph had some sense of what God, how God wanted to use him, and he got up in front of his brothers and said, Yay, even verily, you will worship me, you know? And I will be greater than you? Well, that made him happy. They stuffed him in a hole and sold him to some Arabs going by in a, in a train. I mean, they did. That's who the Arameans are. And, um, and, and then he ends up in Egypt. You understand the whole story. Well, it was, it was premature. It was vain. And, um, and when you do that, you, 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 you make a mess of things. You have to declare the vision at the right time. And when you do it at the right time, when you do it when it's fully, nicely fermented and fully developed and fully baked and, and it's come to its maturity, then's the time to proclaim it. And when you do that, see, that rallies and it summons and it congeals. I think we've had that happen uh, in our political life. Some of you remember this. Uh, let's, let's hear somebody who did proclaim a vision at the right time that did produce the but right why things. why some say the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why, 35 years ago, fly the Atlantic? Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win, and the others too. Now, that might just be a historical speech, but let me tell you something. There's a man in this church who works for uh, the aeronautics department of, of our country now. He watched this. He brought some friends from that department to church last night. They said they heard this. We talked about it in the parking lot. He said, we're going to take those words back. We've been trying to decide whether to go forward or go back. He said, our, our department needs to go forward. These words still inspire us. We're going to take those in next week. Now, that's, that's pretty cool. 
Now, if we start a new space race, don't blame it on me. All I did was do a sermon. But what I'm trying to say is that when you declare the vision at the right time, it can produce something awesome. Very quick little kind of goofy humorous story about declaring it at the wrong time. Uh, when I was pastoring a church in Nashville, uh, we were right downtown, and because of some street witnessing a group of, uh, of women from our church were doing, they started leading a lot of strippers to Jesus from some area strip clubs. Well, you know, we, you know, it wouldn't have been probably my choice of people, to, but whatever, whatever God wants to do. So we pushed all the staff women and all the elders' wives and everybody on the front end of that, and they started coming. Well, I, I, I you know, there's only so much you can deal with when you get folks saved, you know, before the first Sunday morning service. You understand what I'm saying? There's only so much, that, like a short list of things you can cover between now and the time they start showing up. So we got them Bibles, we got, you know, but, but they, I can't say they changed their dress very much. So here's the section of very, I'm telling you, radically born again, filled with the Spirit, on fire for Jesus. And it was a church where folks danced and stuff like that. And I'm telling you, I just kind of worship like this, you know. And, and um, it was wonderful. Well, uh, one, we, at the same time, we led a little, a, a young 13, 14-year-old kid uh, to Jesus from a Muslim family. Uh, and so he was watching these strippers get excited for Jesus. And he went home 36 hours after becoming a Christian, which already wasn't good news in his Muslim family. And he told them that he felt called to minister to strippers. <laughs> <laughs> The father called me. I said, I, I think every 13-year-old boy feel, feels called to ministry, doesn't he? I don't, I, I, you know, trying to lighten it up. It really didn't work that well. But uh, anyway, so be careful when you proclaim the vision. But there is a time to proclaim it. It's when it's fully baked, and it's when it galvanizes and congeals and focuses everything that's meant to be galvanized, congealed, and focused. So then these awesome things happened, and, and the words live on. They made all of this happen. Why? Because John F. Kennedy, whatever else you think of his presidency, stood up at the beginning of a, of a, of a decade and said, uh, we're going to go to the moon. And we did. Because it, it, it rallied the resources of the time. A few more things. One of my favorite people is George Whitfield. George Whitfield was an Anglican priest who led revival in the American colonies right before the American Revolution. It was a powerful, transforming revival. And many scholars say if we had not had that revival, we would not have had an American Revolution. And he suffered. He suffered, and in many cases it wasn't just redemptive, it was opposition. Uh, his, he lived such a hard life. His wife lost four children in 16 months. Um, he used to preach on platforms under trees. The enemy began to, his opposition began to realize how to get up in the trees and urinate on him while he was preaching. They'd throw dead cats at him. They'd go uh, get, get uh, uh, eroding uh, cow carcasses and pull out all the guts and throw them on him while he was preaching. Uh, he had a little eye squinting kind of thing on the left, kind of a half-closed eye. Uh, and, and they called him Dr. Squintum in the New York Times of the day and picked on him and mistreated him. And I have been in, in uh, George Whitfield's, uh, at, at his crypt in the last year, it's just outside of Boston. You have to go through a janitor's broom closet to get there. He still is not honored as he should have been. He's a forgotten founding father. He literally was one of the fathers of our nation. Never quite honored. But I'll tell you what, he's honored in heaven because he lived out the way chosen for him. And what happens with a lot of our easy theology in the church, and I'm not trying to be critical, is we think if it's hard, it's not God. Sometimes it's the hardest thing you've ever done. Sometimes it's the most difficult thing you've ever done. And George Whitfield, most people still don't know who he is and still don't have any idea uh, of what he did. But I don't think we'd have a nation without him. 
and, and, and you can, and I tell you, you can walk up to Newburyport, Massachusetts and go to the Presbyterian Church and you have to go downstairs through a dark basement and through a janitor's closet to find where this man is buried. And, he, and he's, he's as equal to any of the founding fathers. And that's just how it sometimes go. The calling of God is not an invitation to fame or wealth. It's an invitation to obedience and, and to hear in eternity, well done, thy good and faithful servant. And, and, and you know, as, as though to confirm that, I mean, I, I want you just to tell me for just a moment, uh, who is this? Who is this? Anybody have any idea? Well, this is a, this is a chubby little British nanny. I doubt anybody in the room who hasn't already heard this talk this morning knows who this is. And I'm not picking on you. I mean, it happens to be the stuff I specialize in. Most folks don't know. Um, but uh, she became a Christian uh, in some Methodist revivals in 1860, 1870. Uh, and then uh, a couple of her husbands died. She had two husbands. Both of them died of diseases. Um, and and then, uh, then she decided to become a nanny and go into service, as they used to say in the British world. And she took charge of a chubby little baby uh, from the upper classes. She loved him, she prayed with him, she taught him her faith, taught him scriptures, uh, taught him uh, the hymns, and so on. And, uh, and when he was about four years old, she prayed with him to become a Christian, and both of them wrote about it later. Well, her name was Elizabeth Everest, and the little four-year-old baby, that she, or this four-year-old boy that she was taking care of, uh, was a young man named Winston Leonard Spencer Churchill. And so when, when Churchill later went before the whole world and said, this is paganism and the Christian nations need to arise, he learned that worldview from her. He learned it from her. And, and she didn't know what she had. She was just leading somebody. She was just being obedient. But she ended up leading the greatest leader of the 20th century to Jesus and changing the course of Western history. And I visit her grave whenever I can uh, when, when I'm in London uh, because I, she, she, I think she's one of the most important people in history and nobody knows who she is. And the problem is uh, that for many of us, we tend to think that what's big and attended and gets lots of attention and what's fancy is what is involved with the calling of God. But, you know, who knows that you're not tending some four-year-old now that's not going to change the world. And, and, and you might be as obscure as this woman is to history, and yet look at the change that you can make. What I want you to take with you uh, is not the bad news about the idea of fulfilling the dream. I just want you to be sober about it. And I don't want you to be disappointed because it's not unfolding in your, wife, in your life the way you think it ought to look. God is the author and finisher of your faith. And he is bringing you to completion. And he will fulfill your destiny. And the problem that some of us have is that we're disillusioned because we expected it would be different. We're like the two on the road to Emmaus saying we had, saying we had hoped. Well, I don't know what you had hoped. But let me tell you, God is the great economist and he's working it out in just the right way. All right? Now, one more thought for you. I would imagine for many of you, like me, uh, that this man is, is one of your heroes, uh, certainly is one of mine. And I, I love so much I could talk about him forever. But here's what I want you to know. Uh, at the Lorraine Motel, uh, which is where he was shot and killed in the 60s, uh, which is now the Civil Rights Museum in Memphis in, ten in Tennessee, um, these words from the story of Joseph are on a plaque there because Dr. Ralph Abernathy asked for them. And, it, and it's the words of Joseph's brothers to uh, to each other once Joseph had stupidly announced the vision too early. Behold the dreamer, come now, let us slay him. And I want you to remember today, and I want it to be good news for you, uh, that uh, these are the words, if not the words, at least the sentiment of the flesh, the devil, and the world when they see you coming. This is a person with a dream. Uh, this is a person who's called to something magnificent. 
I don't want to get too personal, but, but you know, when the enemy, the flesh, the devil, and the world sense that someone is special, called, anointed, has a way chosen for them, uh, what do they do? They start beating on them early. Uh, what, what, did, what did the rulers, what did the devil always do in, in the Bible? Uh, whenever somebody was called, they'd stir up uh, wicked people against the innocent, against the two-year-olds in the New Testament. You're sexually abused early, what was going on? The enemy's trying to snuff out any sense that you have a chosen life. Uh, you, you had tough circumstances, you've had opposition, you feel like the whole world's saying, behold, the dreamer, come, let us slay him, let us slay her. Yeah, that's exactly what's happening because the devil hates the dream. The devil hates the purposes of God. The flesh, the devil, and the world despise that there is a way chosen for you. Shouldn't make you arrogant, shouldn't make you defeated, shouldn't make you disillusioned, but it should make you determined that every day in this life you are going to fulfill the purposes of God for your life. So may the Lord give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation, and may you take hold of that for which Jesus has taken hold of you.